Leviticus chapter 11, beginning in verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that that you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you, and you shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, this shall be an abomination to you. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite and the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the shorty owl, the seagull, and the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, and the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hopo, and the bat. All flying insects that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you. Heavenly Father, as we study this passage today, please explain and and show us how this is a picture of of your people and how we should know the things that are holy and the things that are unholy, the things that are clean and the things that are unclean. Help us to understand that from the things that you've made. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, after talking about the cattle and about the animals of the field, the animals that walk on the earth, and... You know, that should largely be considered those that walk on four feet, that you can only eat those who chew the cud, which I think is on the word of God, and having a cloven hoof, this idea of, of standing and having a standing in both earth and heaven. And at the same time, so there's this picture that at the same time that they have, that they're standing on the heaven and standing on earth, that our citizenship is in both places, that we're not just just earthly, even though we are on the earth, but we have a, a heavenly aspect through the work of the Holy Spirit. So God had been speaking to Moses and Aaron, and now he starts to talk about other people. And remember the context of this. The context of this is he just said to, to Aaron that the duty of the priesthood is to know what is clean and unclean, to know what is holy and unholy, and to teach it to the people of Israel. That's in, he's doing that by teaching them what they're allowed to eat and what they're not allowed to eat. And so we know that these are physical pictures of unclean things that, that they're given so that we can understand the spiritual things. Just like Aaron understood that even though he was physically clean, he was unclean because of his, his attitude towards God after God had taken his his oldest two sons. We know that Peter understood it when he said that with the sheet coming down from heaven that's filled with all kinds of animals that he is not to call unclean what God calls clean and that it's talking about the Gentiles. It's not talking about the animals directly. The animals are just a picture of the Gentiles. The clean animals are pictures of those who are right with God and the unclean are pictures of those who are not right with God. So after talking about the beasts of the field, he talks about the things in the water. To be clean, it must have fins and scales. And while that might be hard to say, this is the right application, at least we know what it means. And then we come to the birds. And you read this list of unclean birds. And the problem with the unclean birds is that many, not all, but many of them, we actually have no idea what the bird is. Like none. And you go and you look, like I did last night, at a bunch of different translations, and they translate all these birds as different birds. Because nobody knows who the birds are. Now the bat, when you get to the bat, everybody agrees that's a bat. But beyond that, these birds are not known birds. We don't know what these birds are, but yet we're supposed to take from these birds and understand things about what is clean and what is unclean, even though we don't know what the birds are. And so people go and they look and they say, well, we think it's this. They come up with a paradigm that, well, these first five, you know, 
they all sound like they're birds of prey, so these are have to be large birds, and so we'll say it's this bird and it's this bird, and all these things. But that's just speculation. That's not that's not actually based on much. But we're supposed to be taking these birds that we don't know what they are, and from that go, this teaches us what is clean and unclean, because God wasn't just writing it for Israel. He wasn't just writing it for the Jews, he was writing it for us. Everything in the Old Testament was for the people of the New Testament. So you look at different translations, and they're all, diff- they're all translated different words, so, so what do you do? Well, what I think is the right way to do it is, I can't tell who's translating this right. I can't tell who's making the right guess as to which bird is which. So it means it can't matter that much what the birds are. But God had to give us information so that we could figure out what's clean and what's unclean. Because he gave it to us to understand. So I think when we look at these and say what's spiritually clean and what's spiritually unclean, is to fall back on the sovereignty of God and say, God kept for us what we need to know about these birds. And we don't know what the bird is. But we do know where the word for the name of the bird came from. And so I think the right way to interpret this is to say, okay, so where did, the, where did this name come from? If the bird's name came from to be violent, which is what one of these birds' name came from, The unclean is the violence and not the specific bird. And so as you go through most of these birds, it's pretty obvious why they're unclean based on their name. And God didn't preserve to us which the bird was, but he did preserve to us what the name of the bird was. And he did preserve to us the Hebrew language so that we can say, oh, this name for this bird, it came from this word. And so the way I think that you have to use the information that you've been given and the information that we've been given is the meaning of the words of the birds names and not the birds themselves. So I think that's the means for interpreting in, interpreting this. So the passage first starts with an easier interpretation problem. So let's consider the things in the water. Leviticus 11:9 through 12. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scale, that shall be an abomination to you. So he's going to start here with what you may eat. With the beasts of the fields and with the things in the waters, he actually starts the list not with the things that cannot be eaten, but the things that can be eaten, the things that are acceptable, the things that we should look at and see the characteristics and say, these are the characteristics of something that is right with God. Something that that is acceptable to God. And again, we're not talking about fish. We're talking about men. What does it look like in human beings to be holy, to be clean with God? So he starts with all those that are in the water. He's going to make it clear later that he's talking about both fresh water and salt water. So this isn't just talking about rivers, but it's also talking about oceans as well. So when he says of all those that are in the water, he's saying there's one standard. There is one standard of what it means to be clean, what it means to be holy. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're an Israelite. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're an Ethiopian. It doesn't matter if you're a Caucasian. None of it matters. It is the same standard throughout the whole world. The standard of cleanliness doesn't change. The standard of being holy doesn't change. This isn't just about the promised land. This is about whatever is in the water. So so the specific picture here is whatever lives constantly in the water. And it probably includes amphibians as well. 
This is a means to determine what is clean and unclean so that the the priest could teach the children of Israel what it meant to be clean, what it meant to be holy, and what was unholy. So those that are clean have fins. So in thinking of the different possibility of what this points to, you read, and some people say it's a picture of grace, having received grace, because, you know, a a fish, a trout, is a lot more graceful than a lobster. But in thinking about that, there is a smoothness of motion, but I don't think that that's what it's really pointing to. The difference between things with fins and things without fins is things without fins move according to the water that they're in. A lobster, it can hang on and not move, but it can't swim in a stream. If there's a current, it moves with the current. The things that can actually swim and aren't controlled by the water are those things that have fins. They're the things that can swim upstream. They're the things that that don't just go at the speed of the water around them. So I think the the picture, you know, you know, even something like an eel, which doesn't have, yeah, we don't think of that and go, oh, it has fins. But an eel, it moves, but it moves. Like when it goes upstream, the way it goes upstream is it only does it in a tidal river, and when the tide goes up, it moves up, and then it sinks to the bottom, and when the tide goes out, it grabs onto a rock, and then the tide comes in, and it, and it doesn't swim. And that's the closest thing to something that has fins that I could think of. And they don't go contrary to the water. In the end, all they can do is flow, go with the flow or stay in the same place. So I think the requirement to have fins is pictured in James. James 1, 6 through 8, But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Fins give you stability in the water. They give you the, uh, the ability to... To not just go with the current, but to swim upstream. You know, this passage is comparing waves that are tossed to and fro by the wind. But the animals in those waves, if they don't have fins, they get tossed by the waves. And the righteous aren't so. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's easy to read that, that second part. Just think of this as like this is a suggestion. Do not be conformed by the world. That you can, you can be a Christian and still be conformed by the world. But if you look at the first phrase, it says, figure out what is holy. How do you distinguish between the holy and the unholy? How do you distinguish between those who are right with God and those who aren't right with God? Those who are acceptable to God are those who do not conform themselves to the world. Those who the world goes one direction and they go the other direction. That's not an optional thing. That is who is holy. That is who is acceptable. That is who is a sacrifice, a clean sacrifice to God, is those who are not conformed to the world. I think that's the picture of having fins. Paul's saying, if you just go along with the world, you're not a holy sacrifice. You're not acceptable to God. You're not right with God. Paul is not just saying this is what you should do. He's saying this is how you figure out. This is how you discern between the holy and the unholy. Between the clean and the unclean. If you won't swim against the world, don't deceive yourself. You're not clean. If you just go whatever way the world goes, you're not clean. Remember when they they come to Jesus Christ and they say to Jesus Christ, where do you get your authority? And he says, well, let let me ask you, where did John get his authority? Did he get it from God or from men? And they go, well, let's see. If we say it's from God, 
then everybody's going to say, then why didn't you submit to him? And if we say it's for man, then everybody's going to be mad at us. That's the picture of not having fins. So Jesus Christ goes to the Pharisees and goes, you don't have fins. All you do is conform to the world. You're not holy. You're not acceptable. So when he says these things, understand they're serious. When, when, when Jonathan was reading the passage, he says abomination like four times in two sentences. He's not kidding around about this. He's saying if you conform yourself to the world, if the world drives your behavior, you are unclean. You are an abomination in the sight of God. That's what he's saying. It's so easy to read Romans 12 and just go, oh yeah, he's just saying this is what we should do instead of going, no, he's saying this is how you see whether you are saved or not. This is how you see whether you're holy or not. Do you just move with the flow? If you just go with the flow, you're not worthy of Christ. And Christ... Christ's bride is worthy of Christ, not because of her work, but because of Christ's work in her. To be an acceptable sacrifice to God, you must be holy. And to be holy, you must conform yourself to God and not to the world. And scales. I think the scales are... A picture of being protected from the world. Gil makes the point that it's the effect of good works. And I think that, that there is connection to that. According to 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. So he says the scales might be a picture of good works. And I think they are, but they're, they're the whole armor of God. Scales are a picture of armor. There's real protection when you do good works. In the eyes of the Gentiles, they then have to consider something else. Will we lose these things that benefit us if we declare them as evildoers? Think about it, when Christ is going and he's walking among the people and he's healing the multitudes and he's casting out demons out of the multitude and he's feeding thousands. When the Pharisees say, put him to death, they have to go. But people aren't going to be very happy. There's going to be a bunch of people who are now sick that would have been made well by Christ. And they still chose to do it, but they had to hesitate. And they had to work it before they could finally get to the point where they, they could crucify him. Good works are a type of scales. They are a protection. But that's not separate from putting on the whole armor of God. You can't just put on good works and think that will protect you. Ephesians six thirteen and 17, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. If you don't have truth, if you're not doing it with the truth of what God has declared, of what the truth that God has commanded, you don't have scales. You can't walk in falsehood and think you have scales, think you're protected by God, that you put on the armor of God. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness is a picture of good works. When you walk in righteousness, you love your neighbor, you love your enemy. It is, it is another term for good works. When Jesus Christ came and he, he looks at the Jews and comes to his own and his own will not receive him, he looks and says, you didn't produce the fruits of righteousness. Instead of doing good to one another, you did evil to one another. You manipulated one another. You stole from one another. You said we're doing good to God by stealing from your parents and not caring for those who are in your own household. Righteousness and good works can't be separated. The breastplate of righteousness is the protection that you get 
from walking in God's ways because good works are, they are armor against the Gentiles as it says in 1 Peter 2. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You have to be preaching the gospel. You have to go out there and speak the words of God. You have to care enough about other people to actually actually speak the truth that there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved than Jesus Christ. And above all, taking the shield of faith, which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I think the scales on the fish are a picture of the person who has the word of God. They have faith. And so they're protected from the world. Not only can they, sw- they swim against the world and against the flow of the world, but they do it because they're following God, because they're trusting in God. They're separated from the world. So scales, I think, is a picture of having the whole armor of God. Now it says weather in the seas. I think it's important that it's all the waters, but they start with the seas. Throughout Scripture, the seas are a picture of the Gentiles. Sometimes he uses the word isles. Sometimes he uses the word seas. But the seas, I think, are a picture of the Gentiles. Because when you think about it, right, the Israel is the land there. And if you went most places, a lot of places you would go by the seas. And so it's kind of the picture of the rest of the world. It's clear if you look at the cross-references around it, it's clear when Matthew, when Jesus says in Matthew 21, 21, so Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. He's telling his disciples the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. That if they have faith, the gospel will go to the Gentiles. Because the seas is the picture of the Gentiles. It comes immediately after cursing the fig tree, which is a picture of Israel. So when we think, when it says seas here, we should be thinking about away from Israel. This is the standard. This is the standard among the Greeks. This is the standard among the Egyptians. This is the, this is the standard everywhere. This is the standard among the Gentiles of what it looks to be righteous. This is the standard among the church of what it looks to be righteous. This is the universal standard that always was. There's only one standard for those who are righteous. There's not a standard for the Jews and a standard for the Christians. The righteous walk by their faith. And walking in faith is always the standard of the children of God. Whether they're Jews or the Gentiles, God's holiness remains the same and God's holiness must be reflected in the people that are God. Or in the river, so you have the picture of the salt water, the fresh water. You have the same picture as in Ezekiel, where in Ezekiel the fresh water is flowing from the temple and it's curing the salt water. So there's a sense that the fresh water is this picture of the people of God. It's this picture of Israel that ended up being salt water instead of fresh but that's the picture and so they were supposed to be curing they were supposed to be going out but the picture is the same it doesn't matter if you're in israel or if you're among the gentiles the standard of holiness is the same the primary picture is that the standard of righteousness doesn't change the jews were sure it did when jesus christ comes to them They go, we have Abraham as our father. And he said, if you had Abraham as your father, you would do the works of Abraham. Because the standard doesn't change. The standard of righteousness, what it takes to be holy doesn't change. Romans 2, 5 through 11. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, 
indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Doesn't matter if you're in the seas, doesn't matter if you're in fresh water, the standard's the same. It doesn't matter if you're in a church, it doesn't matter if you're out in the world, the standard is the same. Being in church but not walking with the armor of God means you're not saved. Being in church but just being conformed to the world. There's people who come to church. I've seen this so many times that people come to church and they change all their behavior and then something gets them angry and they leave the church and all their behavior changes again. Guess what? They don't have fins. They're not clean. If all you do is come to church because it will constrain your behavior so it will cause you to walk in a different way, that's just you wanting to be in fresh water, not salt water. That doesn't change your nature. You have to be willing to swim up against the stream. So of all that's in the seas, all that's in the rivers, that you may eat. The picture of being clean is that you could eat of it. It doesn't matter where the words, where the waters were. But in all the seas and all the rivers, and again, God started with the things that were acceptable. But it's black and white. There is no in-between. You're either clean or unclean. The person is either holy or unholy. Those that do not have fins and scale, those who just go with the flow, those who are controlled by the world rather than following God, and remember, when Jesus Christ comes, he, he uses this as an example. Matthew 10, 36 and 38, And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Those who love the world, those who, who will not separate themselves from the flow of the world, those who will not follow God rather than following the world, they are unclean. They are not holy. So you have to be willing to go, even if it means losing your father and mother, even if it means losing your son or daughter. You have to follow God. Or you're not worthy of him. You're not saved. Is what Jesus Christ is saying. But you also must have scales. Both are required. Being separated from the world and putting on the armor of God. All that move in the water. There are other things that move in the water. When you think of animals that have fins but do not have scales. It includes dolphins, whales, sharks. The biggest animals on the earth. Like a whale. It it has fins but it doesn't have scales and i think this is a picture i think god has put it there as a picture there are lots of really powerful people that they don't look at donald trump donald trump expects the world to conform to him rather than him conforming to the world Right? The powerful expect the world to conform to him think of nebuchadnezzar nebuchadnezzar did not expect that he would just have to go whatever way the world said. And so it's not just people who, who don't go along with the world. It's those who don't go along with the world because they're following God, because they're, they're girded with the belt of truth. Those are the ones that are holy. There's lots of powerful people. Nebuchadnezzar was a whale in history. He did whatever he wanted. He could set up a statue and have everybody bow down and worship the statue. He was a whale, but he didn't have fin or he didn't have scales. So there's things that move in the water, and they weren't supposed to eat them because just because they weren't conformed to the world doesn't mean that they were right with God. Unclean unless they have both. Anything that moves in the water or anything which is in the water. There's other things that are living in the water. Shrimp, lobster, jellyfish, clams, you name it. There's lots of other things that don't have fins or scales. And they're an abomination to you.
It's interesting to note the word used here. It's much stronger than the word used related to the beasts of the field. For them, the word was unclean. And the word unclean comes from like it's foul. It's like, it's like something that's spoiled. They were supposed to, to if they, they were supposed to, it, it was supposed to be like spoiled. It was supposed to be, they were supposed to know something was off with those animals. But the word abomination is like filth. It's more like to them they should have thought of it if they ate one of those animals that they were eating manure. It's like much stronger than what happened if they ate the other ones. Both of them are sins. They're both abominations because of the rebellion against God. But the picture of the two are different. This is much stronger. It's saying if you, if you don't see this, if, you don't, if you're talking about discerning between the holy and the unholy, this is the one that you should recognize. The other one might seem off. And when you think about it, when you think about the picture of chewing the cud, there's lots of people that they go, oh, I, I read the Bible every day. And you can go, oh, they chew the cud. And you find out they don't chew the cud at all. They never think about what it does. They just have their Bible reading that they're supposed to get through, and they get through it every day. But they aren't chewing the cud. But from the outside, it looks like they are. Somebody can talk about heavenly things all the time, and it can look like their hope is in heaven. It can look like they're saying, I have citizenship in heaven. But it can all be a facade. We're supposed to see that, but it's harder to see that and know. But then you compare that to to this. You can see if somebody is controlled by the world. You can see if they're willing to stand up or if they just flow with the world. You can see if somebody is being devious or if they put on the belt of truth. These things are easily seen compared to whether they chew the cud and whether they have a cloven hoof. If you don't have good works, if you don't wear the breastplate of righteousness, they're an abomination. You know, the church is filled with people that we're supposed to say these are an abomination. They made a profession of faith. They come to church, but they never do anything. They never show love towards their neighbor. They never care for anybody else. I'm sorry. You're supposed to look at them and not go, they're unclean. You're supposed to look at them and go, they are an abomination. Because they call themselves Christians. They blaspheme the name of God. This is far more serious than just being... Well, they say they read the Bible, but I don't really think they think about the Bible that much. God says it's an abomination. Being fooled by somebody, that a person that you think they're chewing the cud and that you think they have a cloven hoof, that's not an abomination. You just get to be unclean. But when these things that should be very visible aren't there and you treat them like a Christian when your duty is to say who is holy and who is unholy, who is clean and who is unclean, when the duty of the priesthood is to teach that to the people, how much more serious it is when you overlook it and you say, yeah, they have no good works, but they're saved, even though the Bible says that the reason he saved them was he made them new creatures for good works. So it's an abomination to treat them as a Christian versus to have somebody that uses godly language and reads their Bible but doesn't meditate on it, to treat them as a Christian is just to be unclean. They shall be an abomination to you. You're supposed to treat them as unholy. We're to make a difference between the clean and the unclean. We're supposed to discern that difference and we're supposed to teach other people that difference. And God is saying, if you don't get this, it's an abomination You shall not eat their flesh. They were not to physically eat the flesh of these animals. That's a picture of joining with them. We're not supposed to join with those who are not holy, who are not set apart to God and pretend like they are. We're not supposed to join with those who don't do good works. Those who just conform themselves to the world. That's not the church. That's not the bride of Christ. 
Then it says, but you shall regard their carcasses. Again, the language is stronger. With the, with the beasts of the field, they were not to touch them. Here they're not to regard them. Meaning it goes beyond touching them. To not regard them means that they're supposed to actively look on them with aversion. They're supposed to look on them and say, this is bad. Not just touching it's bad, looking at it's bad. You're supposed to look at the carcass and say, this is evil. You're supposed to look at it and regard their carcasses as an abomination. And this testimony is stronger this, that a person who doesn't have the spiritual equivalent of fins and scales, but they call themselves Christians, we're supposed to treat them as Christ does. Matthew 23, 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like the whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's how Christ treats those who say that they believe in Jehovah, but they don't have fins and they don't have scales. That's how He treats them. He regards them as an abomination. He doesn't just regard them as unclean. He regards them as an abomination. And they're supposed to regard as an abomination anything, whatever in the water that does not have fins or scales. Whatever's lacking either, they can look holy and righteous, but if they go along with the world and do not resist the things of the world, they can read their Bible all they want, but if they go along and they conform themselves to the world, they do not know God. They do not have faith. They do not trust in the living God. Instead, they trust in the world. So if they go along with the world, they're not clean. Or if they stand against the world, they go their own way. They, they aren't controlled by the world, but they don't do it based on righteousness and truth. They're still an abomination. You have to have scales and fins, not just one or the other. Whatever is in the water that does not have fins or scales, they are an abomination. That shall be an abomination to you. We're to see them in their light and treat them as an abomination to God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. That's what Christ did. And we're supposed to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Because they're taking his name in vain. Verses 13 through 19. And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, the screech and the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopoe, and the bat. And again, I read that list of birds, and I don't think that the chances of that being correct is about 0%. Nobody knows what they are. They just put down words. It's important to recognize that. They just put down words. And if you read in the King James, it's different. You read in the NASB, it's different. They're all different. Nobody knows what they are. But yet it says you're supposed to regard those, just like the fish in the water, just, just like the things that don't have fins and don't have scales. You're supposed to look at these birds and regard those, them as an abomination, which means that somehow we have to be able to figure out How are these an abomination? Because we don't know what the bird is, but yet we're supposed to look at it and regard it as an abomination. So I think, again, from the meaning of the words that these animals, the names of these animals are derived from, that this list of birds we're supposed to recognize as an abomination, even though we don't know what what bird they are. This is the idea that Paul expresses in Galatians 5. He says the work of the flesh are evident. The work of the flesh is evident. And as you go through these birds and you go through the, na- the words that the names came from, you see the work of the flesh, the work of the flesh, the work of the flesh, the work of the flesh. And I think what God is saying to Aaron that he's supposed to teach 
to the children of Israel is, you're supposed to be able to tell the difference. You're supposed to know what is the work of the flesh. We don't need to know the birds. We need to know what the works of the flesh are. And Paul goes, it's obvious. It's evident. So, among the birds, the word translated bird comes from the word to cover. And so that it's thought that that usually means covered with with feathers. And so, but, but a bat doesn't have feathers, and a bat's in this list. So the word has to be more broadly than that. And it's probably those that have wings that are large enough that they cover a significant part of the body. That's probably what the animals are. Because a bat, that qualifies to. Birds, that qualifies to. And so it probably means that their, their bodies are covered by their wings. So among the birds, they shall not be eaten. They are unclean. And so these are a picture of men that are not acceptable in the sight of God. They are an abomination. Again, they are to be regarded as filthy. Not something that's just just defiling, but something that is filthy. Something to be disregarded. Something to be treated treated as defiling. And not just making you unclean so you need to bathe and and be unclean until evening, but where you're actually defiled by it. So it starts with the eagle. And this is usually thought to be an accurate translation, although other things translate it a different way. But most of them are consistent. This is a large bird of prey. But the root word that the eagle is named after, the Hebrew word that, that they translate the eagle here, it means to lacerate. This is a picture of those who try to harm their neighbor. Those who work to harm their neighbor, those who work to cut the people around them, they're an abomination in the sight of God. We're to care for our neighbor and not try to harm them. The eagle's the picture of those who try to harm their neighbor rather than to be a blessing, to be a curse. Shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the opposite. The vulture, again, this is much debate, and it's, it's interesting. You read different things, and they put the same birds in different... Yeah, they translate the birds in different places for the same birds. So nobody knows what they are. But we do know what the word comes from. The word comes from... The name of the bird comes from a word that means to break into pieces, to divide. Those who work to divide... You know, it says in Romans 16 that... Those who divide the church, we're supposed to note and avoid them. We're supposed to go, this is an abomination. And I think that's the picture here. I think more generally, Christians are to be bringing unity rather than di- division. And that should be the desire, even though frequently, God, the means to unity is the preaching of the word. But preaching of the word frequently causes division, but the desire has to be for unity. When Jesus Christ came, he called all people to himself, but the result of that was division. So it's not the result, it's the desire, it's what you're working towards. The vulture is the picture of somebody who's working to create divisions and to split people into, into groups, to set people against other people. That's an abomination in the sight of God. The buzzard, again, translated different ways in different translations. But the, the word that the name of the bird comes from means strength or boldness or loudness. And obviously it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be strong in the word, in the Lord. There's many examples of calls to strength like David's mighty men. So probably more, probably more corresponds to being contentious. Always wanting to be in a fight. Always wanting to, to fight with other people. And the Bible says in the New Testament, those who are contentious... They're not righteous with God. That's the work of the flesh. The kite. And this is the only place in all of Scripture where this word is used, which makes it really hard to identify what the bird is. But the word that the name comes from means to dart, to fly rapidly. It's probably a picture of inconsistency. Those who don't persevere, those who don't, don't have a level of consistency in what they do and in what they're what they're doing in the world 
If all you do is fly from one thing to another, it's that same picture from James 1 that they're unstable in all their ways. That's the picture of the kite. It's unstable in all its ways. Those who are unstable in all their ways, they're an abomination. The falcon. The word that this name comes from is, it means to scream. Or more, to cry in lamentation. It's a, a shortened form of the word that, that is, is frequently translated alas or woe. So I don't think falcon's probably a very good translation of a bird that sounds like it's mourning all the time, but that's the picture. Is this, this bird sounds like it's mourning all the time. This is a picture of the person who's grumbling and complaining. We go, oh, that's not a serious sin. I think God says it's an abomination. You're not supposed to be going, woe is me. You're supposed to be saying, God is right in everything he does. So I think it's a picture of somebody who's grumbling and complaining. Always saying, alas. Always saying, oh, these circumstances are so horrible. And then this phrase is added, too, which is after its kind. A lot of the other birds, it's just this bird, and then here it throws in after its kind. And so there's lots of different ways to, to grumble and complain. There's lots of different ways to say, woe is me. You can just do things slowly. That's a way to say, woe is me. You don't actually have to speak words even. And so God is saying, it's not just the person who is going, alas, woe is me. It's the people that have the same kind of attitude. Anybody that's in that category, anybody that has that same kind of attitude, they're also an abomination before God. We're supposed to specifically in this one and other ones where it puts this phrase and we're supposed to go, so what's the broader category? The broader category isn't just the person who's moping around complaining all the time. The broader category is, is wider than that. And all of it shows works of the flesh and not works of the spirit. And we're supposed to apply it to the whole category. And then every raven after its kind. And again, this might actually be a raven, but that's based on what the word means. What the word means is dusky. It's specifically talking about when it gets dark out. That's what the word means. When it gets dark out at night. And when you think of ravens, they're pretty black, so it could be the right term. But I think the point isn't that. The point is those who want to skirt walking in darkness. That's the picture. The person who doesn't want to walk in the light, they want to walk where it's it's shadowy. They want to skirt the edge. They want their deeds not to be made known. They don't want to walk in complete darkness. That's the bat, which we'll get to later. They just want to they just want to walk where people don't see everything that they're doing. And here that has two modifiers. It still has the same thing about after its kind. So we're supposed to generalize the category. There's lots of ways to walk in the shadows. And we're supposed to look and say, those who want to walk in the shadows rather than the light, the truth of God is not in them. Jesus Christ comes to make his children be children of the light and not of the darkness. Those who want to walk in that, that shadowy place between light and darkness, that's an abomination to God. But it adds another one, every, meaning anything associated with this category. So it's anything associated with darkness. It's stressing it even more. Anything that, that tries to skirt the light, they're an abomination. God's making sure that we see the importance of it. The importance of saying that those who walk in any kind of darkness, those who are desiring to walk in darkness, it's a serious issue. And it is a sign of not being a Christian. So he repeats the idea. Every and after its kind is basically saying the same thing. But he's trying to prove a point. Darkness has no place with Christians. And the ostrich, this word is formed from two Hebrew words. 
and it really means the daughter of the same. But the, the word daughter even there, it's not necessarily like a parent-child relationship. It's more about just having a, a familial relationship. And I do think this is a picture of Matthew ten thirty seven. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's this picture of, of this bird and the, where it, the name of the bird comes from the, the intense family devotion. And that's not acceptable to God. You must love God more than your family. And then the short-eared owl. I don't know where they get some of these birds because they all get different ones. But the short-eared, what's translated in the New King James, the short-eared owl, the root of that word is violence. Those who are violent, those who glory in violence for the sake of violence, those who enjoy being violent, they're walking in the flesh, not the spirit. It's evident, is what Paul says. The violent are not saved. And we're supposed to look at the violent and not go, oh yeah, they say they're a Christian, they're right with God. No, the violent are not right with God. Those who love violence is the picture of the short-eared owl. They're an abomination. The seagull, that comes from a word that means to emaciate. So it's the picture of not caring for others, of causing others to suffer, or allowing others to suffer. That's not righteous. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. The seagull, which probably is not a seagull, is the picture of Matthew 25, where you don't care for others. You just let them, let them suffer. That's an abomination in the sight of God. That's not a Christian. That's an abomination. That's not somebody who's righteous. That's somebody that's unholy. And then the hawk, after its kind, and the word that this comes from means to like brilliancy or brightly colored. This is about showing off. This is about wanting people to see you. Those who show off, those who want to draw attention to themselves, they're not holy. They're not clean. They're not saved. And this can be drawing, and again, it says after its kind. So this can be all kinds of ways that you draw attention to yourself. The kind is that you want the attention, not the means by which you get the attention. It's those who are in control of the lust of the eye. They want people to be looking at them. The lust of the eyes. The desire to have people look towards them instead of looking towards God. That's an abomination in the sight of God. The little owl. The word little owl comes from the word means to a cup or like to hold together, to gather together. It can also mean like a lot, like a, an allotment. And probably that's what's being condemned here. Those who are focused on physical things, on the things that they have received, the things that they have gathered together. It's a picture of being greedy. It's the picture of the prosperity gospel. It's the picture of these, these men that say the gospel is all about what you can get. God says that's an abomination. The fisher owl, that, this means to cast down, is what the word, that the name for the fisher owl comes from. Those who try to destroy, we're, we're here to build up, we're not here to destroy. If all you're trying to do is cast things down to destroy them, rather than actually building the kingdom of God, then you're abomination in the sight of God. The screech owl. This one's interesting because it comes from a Chaldean word. It's not a Hebrew word. And the Chaldean word means angel. So I think the, the picture here is that, that it's those who are worshiping foreign angels. It's those who are, are, you know, they're following demons rather than following God. They're not following righteousness. They want there to be powers that are beyond them. But they're not powers that are the Hebrew powers. They're powers that are the Chaldean powers. And then the white owl. This comes from another word that means to destroy, but, 
but the root of this means hard breather. And so it's probably more like destroying out a passion, having a, a zeal, having being passionate about things so that you destroy it. It's, I think it's the picture that's translated jealousies in Galatians 5. Those who are consumed by jealousies so that they go out and destroy things. They're an abomination before God. The jackdaw, this is an interesting one. The jackdaw, that word comes from, from the word to vomit. That's what it's named after, vomiting. And so, you know, my, my first thought was this is probably the picture of the drunkard or the glutton. The person who makes himself sick through their lack of control. Again, all these are an abomination before God. And the carrion vulture, this is an interesting one because most of the other ones we immediately associate with things that we see as wrong, violence, walking in the darkness. We can immediately look, but this one actually, this word comes from the word to, to fondle or to love. The root that it comes from is most frequently translated mercy. But yet God says this is an abomination. So I think the picture here is those who show false mercy. Those who call things love that God doesn't call love. Those things that people do where they're, they're caring about them. And God's looking at it and saying it's really hatred. It's like the parent who says, I would never use the rod on my child. I love my child. And God looks at it and says, they despise their child. Spare the rod, despise the child. But yet they're so sure they're showing mercy and it's the false mercy of the unbeliever. And the stork, another one, this, is, this comes from the word for pious. So this is the person that acts religious, but their religious is worthless because it's just a show. It doesn't have any true substance. It doesn't produce any good works. The truly holy produce 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. These are just the pious. These are the Pharisees who look like they're so righteous, who look like they study the scripture, that know the scripture, but they don't produce any good works. I think that's the picture of the stork. The heron after its kind. The, hair, the name for the heron comes from another word that means to breathe hard, but this isn't like breathing hard out of passion. This is breathing hard because of anger. This is the picture of an angry man. To be filled with anger is to not be right with God. And notice it says after its kind on this one too. You can express your anger in a passion with zeal. You can express your anger coldly. But the angry man, after his kind, is not right with God. It's not to say that there's never a time for anger. There is a time for anger when it's God's name that's offended. But this isn't that. This is the person that's angry, regardless of how they express it. The angry man is an abomination before God. The hoopoe, nobody has any idea what this word means. They just assign a bird to it. Nobody has any clue. They have no idea of the origin of it. They have no idea of anything related to this word. They just made up a word. They just said, oh, it'll be this bird. So what are we supposed to take from that? Here we have a bird that they're supposed to recognize as an abomination but yet we have no idea what the word means. We have no idea what the bird is. We have no idea about anything related to it. It's just a Hebrew word that's disconnected from everything else. I think in the end, it's what Paul says in Galatians 5. You know what the works of the flesh are. I don't really need to tell you. All these other ones are works of the flesh. And then Paul goes, or anything else? Or anything else? And God says to Aaron and Moses, or anything else, this other bird, we don't need to know what it is because you understand the category. We are to understand the category. So we're supposed to recognize the, the hoopoe even if we don't have any clue what it is based on the other birds we're supposed to know. And then the bat. This word, again, doesn't really have any derivation but there's a lot less debate about what, the, what this is. This is a bat. 
And the picture of a bat is somebody who lives in the darkness. They don't, they don't want light. They don't see by light. They love dark places. They don't, they don't, they're, not, they're not like the word translated raven, which is like the, this cross between the light and the dark where they're trying to walk on the edge. The bat just loves darkness. The bat's pretty much a picture of John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus Christ came to Israel, or came to the Jews, and he found a flock of bats. And you know what? I think if he came to the church in America, he'd still find a flock of bats. Let me give you some applications. As we read these passages about the beasts of the fields and the things that are in the water and the birds of the air, we see all these characteristics. It should remind us that we're supposed to look at the world that God created and say, God created it. He ordered it. He put all these animals in here. All of this was to testify to who he is. He could have, he could have made it just... He could have made there be like one cow and we meet, we'd beef all the time. Not, I mean, one species of cow, not, not one cow, or we'd be pretty hungry. But, but he didn't do that. He also made lions, and he also made tigers, and he also made all these other animals. He made sheep, and he made lambs. He made giraffes, which are clean. He made all these other animals so that we could understand the diversity of those who are clean and the diversity of those who are unclean. He created each type of these birds so that we could understand a characteristic, even if we don't know what the birds are, so we could understand a characteristic when, when they get named based on what they were named after. We can understand a characteristic of them that we're supposed to recognize and understand. This means it's an abomination. And some of the things that I said, it's easy enough to get them wrong. I'm not guaranteeing that everything I said was accurate. That's my best understanding. But the point is, is that God did it so that we could look at it and have revelation and go, now I know. And yet with the special revelation of the word of God, we're supposed to still look at animals and say, why did God put that animal in the world? He did it to tell us something about himself. That's why he did it. Because he created all things in the world so that we would understand him. And he created all these unclean animals, all these unclean birds. And he created the clean ones so that we could understand things about him. We are to see the truths in creation. Second application, since the first stated purpose of the priesthood is to discern between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean, we should recognize the seriousness of sin when we don't reject the people who are clearly not those who are gods, when, they, when we see these things in their life, when we see the violent man, when we see the angry man, when we see the person who's always trying to divide people, we're not just supposed to sit back and go, well, that's a shame. We're supposed to look at it the same way God looks at it and goes, this is an abomination that they would call themselves Christians, that they would associate themselves with Christ. And that doesn't mean we're supposed to try to seek out and detect every sin in somebody's life, but it is saying, if you see them practicing sin and you say nothing, you have joined them in their abomination. You are partaking of their filth. You're partaking of manure. That's the picture. What the church wants to do now is say, oh, you can love the world. You don't have to swim against the current. Just flow along with the world. Just come to church every Sunday. Just pray a prayer. You can love the world and the things of the world and still be a new creature in God. Allowing that to go on is an abomination before God. That's not what Christ did. And that's not what we're supposed to do. 
In Matthew 23, I think there's a list of seven woes. Just want to read the first couple. Matthew 23, 13 through 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice the son of hell, as you are yourselves. Jesus Christ regarded them as an abomination. Are we renewing our mind like Christ commands us to do? So we don't just look at it and go, oh, that's a shame. We look at it and go, this is an abomination. This is an abomination. When God, when Christ, this is probably Christ speaking to Aaron and Moses, when Christ is speaking to them and he goes, regard them as an abomination, this is what he's talking about. Do we do the same thing? Do we regard them as an abomination? Do we re- How many different kinds of fish are there that have fins and have scales? There's a huge number. They all have fins. They all go against the world. They all have scales. They all put on the armor of God. But then what they look like, how they act, where they go, vastly different. God put in the diversity of creation a picture of the diversity of the church. There is real unity. They all have fins. They all have scales. They all chew the cud. They all have a cloven hoof. But there's real diversity as well. And we should celebrate the fact that God creates such a diverse and wonderful picture in creation so that we understand the diverse and wonderful picture in the church about just what it looks like, how he brings people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation together to worship before him. And he makes them all holy in their differences. That's the picture of the clean animal. Let me close this in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for the things that are here, even as we struggle with it and try to understand what it means, what you're trying to tell us with it, especially all these birds that we don't know who they are even or what they are. We pray that you convict us of the truths that are here. Let us see how we are to apply this. Let us see how this should affect how we live. For you have given us these things. You did it to to set Israel as a separate people. So there would be a picture that the spiritual Israel, that the true Israel would be a separate and distinct people. Make us be a separate people by causing us to see the unclean as unclean and causing us to see those who are an abomination in your eyes as truly an abomination. We thank you that you give us your word. Help us to understand it. In your name we pray. Amen.